Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. I think you're hearing a little bit of the Trent Reznor, Atticus Ross score. Is that the score or the soundtrack? I don't even know. To The Killer. We're going to talk about this David Fincher film here in the first segment today, and then we're going to talk about the new documentary about Albert Brooks by his friend Rob Reiner. When I say we, I mean the nose, and by the nose, I mean Sean Murray, stand-up comedian, writer, and the host of the Nobody Asked Sean podcast. That's Nobody Asked Sean, S-H-A-W-N. And then Irene Papoulos, who teaches writing at Trinity College. She's the author of the essays Only You Can Write. She is the inventor of the Papoulian through line, which is being studied uh, by modern language scholars right now. Gene Seymour is a writer, professional spectator, pop culture maven, jazz geek, and he is the mayor of the Colin McEnroe Show Year in Jazz episode, which is about a month away, probably. Um, So they're all here. Uh, And yes, uh, this is a film directed by David Fincher. It stars Michael Fassbender and arguably nobody else, although Tilda Swinton has a very memorable scene. Um, let's hear a little clip from it before we get going. Uh, this, you, All you hear here, this is kind of the opening of the movie. There's this kind of constant interior narration uh, that threads through the movie. So, Kat, this is A1. Popeye the Sailor probably said it best. I am what I am. I'm not exceptional. I'm just a part. Consider yourself lucky if our paths never cross. Except luck isn't real, nor is karma, or sadly, justice. As much as I'd like to pretend these concepts exist, they just don't. One is born, lives their life, and eventually, one dies. In the meantime, do what thou wilt shall be the whole of the law. To quote, someone. Can't remember who. So it's that kind of snappy Howard Hawks, uh, you know, rapid rapid fire dialogue that we've come <laughs> to enjoy so much. So I I've uh, recently concluded that almost every Harold Pinter play could be called betrayal. I mean, you could just call all them betrayal. I'm going to do this one. I'm going to call it betrayal again. Uh, and there's a lot of David Fincher movies that could be called The Killer. Uh, Seven definitely, <laughs> Zodiac definitely, uh, and of course this one is The Killer. Uh, immediately to be confused with the John Woo movie of the same title. So I'm going to have Mr. Mayor uh, Gene Seymour start us off, uh, partly because Gene has a somewhat sunnier attitude towards this movie than perhaps uh, some of the rest of us do. So, Gene, I'm going to ask you a question, but then you just answer it any way you want to, um, including a way that ignores the question itself. 
One of the questions that I do have about this movie is if we were to assign it a genre or if not a genre, a tone, what would that tone be? Because I've actually, I was just scrolling through Rotten Tomatoes and a couple of people <laughs> referred to it as a, a dark comedy or something. But what is the movie to you? And then, Gene, how do you feel about it? Dark comedy sounds right, particularly when, you know, just, just listening to any part of that narration. Um, <laughs> It, it 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 does seem to be, and I can't tell if it's intentionally or unintentionally funny when I hear some of this stuff. But then I remember, <laughs> well, um, Taxi Driver, Taxi, you know, Travis Bickle did, wasn't wasn't a uh, a mound full of originality either. He spoke in fluent platitude and cliche too. So, um, so I guess on some level. Um, it it is it is a pure, you know, genre dark comedy, and it was on it was in those terms that I found myself appreciating it more more than I expected to, frankly, uh, given given who made it and who wrote it, because um, I I I like it I, I like my um, my uh, hired killer um, operas dry, very dry. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and free of too much self-indulgence. Of course, it can go the other way, too. Um, from what I'm able to tell, I, I felt better about the movie than the rest of the panel did. But, um, you know, I, 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 I was, my, my thinking wasn't so much cinematic as literary. I was a huge fan, for instance, of the uh, novels written by Donald Westlake under the name Richard Stark, where he wrote about this amoral professional thief named Parker, just Parker, no first name, just Parker. And like this guy, he was a, he was like this uh, freelance professional who, who sort of went wherever he was told and went wherever he was paid and did the job and tried to get out, although the getting out was always more complicated. So within those admittedly narrow frames is where I found mm -hmm. myself appreciating it. So, Irene, I, I didn't I wasn't wild about this movie, although I, I did find and I think you did, too. There's a way in which one scene kind of nicely leads to another. I mean, Fincher is, if nothing else, a superb crafts person as he's directing. And he has uh, he has craft, uh, I guess. So there's a way in which you watch one scene and you think, I, I, I think I want to watch the next scene. I wonder what's going to happen next. And that's a good thing. Um, but at some point I, I began to lose I don't know, enthusiasm, I guess. Although I woke up the next day, and you, as a literary person, I want to know what you think of this. I thought, maybe one way to think of this, although I don't think it's really obviously stated, is it's kind of the Odyssey. So many things, of course, are kind of the Odyssey. But, you know, it's about a guy who's sort of an Odysseus guy, kind of tricky, uh, you know, good at, at, at sneaky battle tactics, who needs to get home, so to speak, uh, and is in const encountering monsters, uh, and temptations along the way, the the best monster of all being Tilda Swinton. But Irene, I just love to know first of all whether you think that's a stupid idea or not, and second of all what your overall reaction was. Okay, well, yeah, I have a couple of thoughts there. Um, first of all, I think that's an interesting idea, though he too is a monster, mm -hmm. <laughs> I suppose. So that's um, that's a little different from the Odyssey, but... Well, um, I mean, Odysseus, does, Odysseus yeah. killed a lot of people. Odysseus was, you know, well, a ferocious, okay. sneaky warrior in the Iliad. And, and, well, and then we, yeah, we, we meet true. this more sympathetic guy in, in the Odyssey. Anyway, continue. 
yeah. Well, I mean, I was thinking, well, just to get back to for a second to the idea of the, of, you know, of just the cinematography and everything like the slowness, I loved so much. The first, the first, um, I don't know, was it 10 or 15 minutes took so long with just him alone narrating. And it seemed so beautifully slow in a way that I loved. And there were a lot of moments where we just took our time looking at it, which is so different from what I usually expect from that kind of a movie with the fast act with fast action. And so it was just like, wow, I love this. But then when I thought, what does it add up to? I didn't really, I, you know, I thought it was, it was, yeah, nihilistic and et cetera. But, but actually listen, but speaking of tone and to what um, Jean just said, you know, I listening to the part that you played, listening to it just the, without the visual, you know, quoting Popeye the sailor and then saying like to quote dot, 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 someone, you know, and then he has McDonald's and everything. I started to think about it in a, in a sense that it was a comedy, which I didn't even think for a second when I was watching it. Maybe that's because I'm a, not a very naive viewer of a movie like this. I expected, you know, seriousness, but to think it makes me want to watch it again with the idea of thinking about it as a comedy. Yeah, um, so that's a little direction from from yeah. from the Odyssey, but yeah, no, yeah, I think I think does, that's yeah. legit. Although Sean, if it's a comedy, it should be funnier. Um, if it's a comedy, I mean, Gross Point Blank is a dark comedy uh, about a hired killer, and it's really funny, and it's incredibly yeah. rich with comic tropes. Here, I feel like this is sort of, there's something amateurish about the comedy here. Okay, it's going to be really funny the first time he has a passport that says his name is Archibald Bunker, and the next time it's going to be George Jefferson, and, you know, but that's not that funny, nor is quoting Popeye. I, I, Sean, I, anyway, I should hand the baton to you. No, I I I agree. Um, I'm glad you uh, name dropped uh, Rose Point Blank because that's a thing I thought of. Uh, you know, I kind of didn't like the the voiceover early on, which I do think is a lot of it is intended to be funny. But I was thinking, like, if 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 John Cusack was delivering that in his sort of charming, funny way, I feel like it would have come across funnier and more engaging. I think the point of it. Like the verse, the, uh, the narration doesn't work for me early on because it's supposed to kind of serve as like, um, like it, it, the character's supposed to be sort of like cold and uninteresting, but the voiceover is supposed to sell some sort of humor and charm, not charm, but like to have somebody be droll and uninteresting for 15 straight minutes, even though the, what, what you're watching him do is, is fairly visually interesting. It's just kind of a tough sell for me. The movie works in, not in spite of it, you know, I, I feel like. I don't think Fassbender is doing the wrong thing of what Fincher's asking for him. I just feel like Fincher probably should have asked him to do something different. I feel like, I don't know. <laughs> um, yeah, it was, it was, it was interesting. Like it, it definitely, if I could see where people would say this is his funniest movie or, or it's a funny movie or a dark comedy, but it doesn't really like moment to moment. It's not a dark comedy. He's, you know, there's the, those moments where he said something funny or like you said, you know, Archibald Bunker on the um, passport, but like it's, I can't think of too many scenes after, like, other than that, where I'm like, this is really funny. He just shot a guy in the head because uh, he, um, because he rented, because he, because he, he was driving a taxi. You know what I mean? Like, that wasn't funny. Mm -hmm. I was really sad for that kid. He just, just drove a taxi and now he's dead. Yeah. Oh, um, I, poor Leo. Yeah. That's Leo who gets killed. Yes. Yeah. No, it's really <laughs> funny even when John Cusack says that he, killed the president of Paraguay with a fork. <laughs> but there's nothing that funny here. And and so, Gene, not that I'm right about the Odyssey, because I probably am not right, but 
I also, we'll get to Tilda in just a second here, but this movie seems so uninterested in anybody else except Michael Fassbender's character, who I believe actually has no actual real non-sitcom name. Yeah. And and if it were the Odyssey, then Penelope, Penelope would be this woman named Magdala, uh, right. who... But she, I, she's so underdeveloped in the script. The script is so uninterested in the person that maybe he's trying to get home to. I, what are your thoughts there? Well, Penelope was a lot more interesting in the original, as as <laughs> as for that matter, was Molly Bloom. If you really want to get yeah. far reaching, but um, yes, yes, <laughs> yes, <laughs> she does everything but that, or 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 even less than that. But um, you know, I mean, for. This is not the kind of comedy where I expected to laugh out loud. Um, then again, neither was Fight Club, and I and I laughed a lot at that, both for, for intentional and unintentional reasons. But um, I I didn't really sense. I mean, I, I think the disappointment most of you may feel is that there could have been a little more of the dry humor. I mean, I, I said that I like my I like these sort of things as dry as possible. Um, and I too missed more of a kind of a dry, laconic, laid-back humor, and 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 that, and when I think about it, too often it settled for the it settled. There were quite a few shocks in this. Um, not to spoil too much, but they involve a nail gun. <laughs> they involve mm-hmm. um, you know, uh, somebody getting you know shoved down the stairs and all these other kinds of odd things but um i thought that that it almost seemed to go for that kind of comedy not 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 so much in the actual things that happen the violent stuff but all these little things he's trying to do to make himself invisible i mean i've always wanted to know how you make this kind of movie now about somebody who's trying to stay undercover when it is so hard for any of us to stay undercover, no matter how hard we try. <laughs> and, you know, there were a few scenes that kind of went into that. And I'm, I'm not just talking about the 70s sitcom, you know, pseudonyms or, you know, uh, that he uses, but all the other kind of stuff off to the side. And I, I did think that that could have been mine for, for comic possibilities, or mm-hmm. at least Fassbender's character could have, could have played those a little bit more for I don't know laughs. I mean, I think I think Fight Club, which is another Fincher movie, is funnier and and able to kind yeah. of explore comic dimensions a, a little bit better. Irene, we really do and, have to talk about. There really is one other performance in this film that just pops and that is given any oxygen in which to pop, uh, and that w- would in fact be Tilda Swinton. The movie turns into a narrow narrative about a killer hunting other killers. At one point, she's one of the other killers. Uh, let's play the scene between the two of them. A little bit of that scene. This is a two cat. You know, you get a name, you get an address. It's nothing personal. We've all had to work through the occasional civilian who stood between eyes and the prize. When I started, I was surprised at what I was capable of. How easy it was. Shockingly. Yet I assured myself there were some things I would never do. Money was motivation which, once there was enough, could be used to buy another life. Another lie we told ourselves. When 
For example, was the last time you bothered to ask yourself why someone in your sights was so thoroughly despised? Unless you know the better. One man's cruelty is another man's pragmatism, that old chestnut. Actually, I still prefer Cusack, who says, I think, if I'm at your door, you did something to bring me here. Um, so, Irene, but just comment on, I think Swinton is kind of a, a special moment in, in the film, even if it's only a moment. But what was your take? Yeah. Um, okay, so I have two. One is, first of all, she's so good at making us be on her side. And I was sort of sad for her, you know, in a way that I I wasn't particularly, I mean, I was also sad for like Sean for the guy in the taxi, definitely. But for her, um, there's something about the way she was, she was trying to sort of justify. I mean, I was thinking that the internal narration of the film, we're we're inside his head with his voice talking, um, was interesting in that it was sort of like, okay, he too, like me, like everybody has some kind of like inner philosophy about what we're doing and sort of justification and rules for what we will and won't do. Don't we all sort of have them? And so to think people that we would look at thinking they were immoral, in fact, have, you know, have the rules and are sort of like, and that is also potentially funny because of the rules that they have. And she has a, you know, I assured what she's, I assured myself um, that was something I would never do, you know, like, you know, so she too is ha- has that internal system of rules, it, which I thought was interesting, but she's so um, poignant in the way she, um, in the way she acts the scene. Uh, I don't, I don't want to say too much about how she, do- you know, drinking whiskey, the way she drinks the whiskey and sort of, yeah, I mean, I, what can I say? She's just a, just an amazing actor that, you know, you're just with the character so much when she's there. And also, she has more interesting things to say, too. That's the other thing. Yeah. You know. Yeah, and Sean, so I you mean, I, her philosophy makes more sense in a way than his does. I, I didn't say that, <laughs> but, but she puts it more interestingly. Yeah. I think. Yeah. Um, Sean, I, I found myself thinking the movie, the imaginary movie that has like 35, 40 minutes of Swinton in it somehow is the movie I probably want to watch. A, I got, I mean, Mark, Fassbender is not endlessly entertaining to me. I swear I was just about to say, I hate when people say like, you know, I could have watched the whole movie of this, but I could have watched the whole movie of that scene where it's like a guy who tracks down the person who was sent to kill them. And then they have this sort of philosophical conversation about their profession (laughs) and what like, because, you know, she is definitely trying to get out of getting killed on some level, but she also is recognizing that like, he's not going to not do it. Um, And I think that's a kind of fascinating, uh, like, sort of dichotomy going on in in her head of like, like, can I kind of talk this guy out of it? Can I philosophize with him enough to kind of like live to see another day? Um, And I think that's interesting because I think one of my problems with the movie overall, and and again, I like it. It's just that like, it doesn't have any like tension to me. Like he's tracking down the people who were sent to kill him, but like, they're not still on his case. Like, you know what I mean? So it's like, once he um you know i guess i might be spoiling a little bit but like once he leaves the i think it's the dominican republic it's like okay we know he's tracking down these people but like there's no like urgency if if, if he doesn't if he once he um dispatches of, of a one particular person there is no reason for him to do anything else but revenge which is like it's not a movie really about revenge like i don't i don't i, I can see why he's going to do this but it's like i just he's just a sociopathic killer so it's like he's going to do this regardless but i'm not like motivate like i'm not um impassioned and like on his side in the way that uh that i guess the movie might want me to be and then with tilda uh as irene pointed out she has such a like 
you kind of sympathize with her on a level like she sells it's, it's, she has the exact same like uh effect that she does in that one scene and michael clayton which is so good that wins her an oscar which is like even <laughs> yep. in that moment when she she's one of the worst people in the movie she's done this awful thing but like you sympathize with her because of like like she she has this way of making you like like in, in michael clayton it's like this like she's so clueless about what's happening when he's like um confronting her you you kind of like oh she's just an idiot you know and you kind of feel bad for her but with here it's like she is like she's a killer obviously but she has this like um she is a person in a way that he's not and i think that's yeah. what kind of uh works for that scene yeah although gene i don't know i mean i saw her a little bit differently i saw her as cersei i saw her as somebody <laughs> basically trying to hypnotize Fastbender or beat him at his own game. Mm. I didn't I didn't think mm. there was a tremendous amount of sincerity in that speech. I thought mm. it was, what do I got to say to get out of this? What can I try saying? Mm. Uh, but yeah, Gene, we're... No, no, yeah, that, that, listen, I mean, you really thought about this Odyssey frame a lot. <laughs> <laughs> I, w- I wish I'd given more thought to it because in retrospect, I was thinking of a movie because that's what I usually do is think of other older movies. Um, I don't know if anyone here... Is, remembers a movie called The Hit, which was um, uh, a Stephen Frears movie made several years back with John Hurt. And uh, I think it was uh, Tim, oh God, was it Tim Roth as his young assistant? And they go to this Greek island to kill this guy who's been on the run for decades from from, from grassing on the mob in, in England. And he basically welcomes these guys. He says, yeah, I know what I did. Fine. You know, let's, you know, I've, I've been preparing for this all my life. And that's a total change up from what, you know, from, from what we expected. I, I half expected the Tilda Swinton character to do the same thing. And, and part of what makes her interesting, beside the fact that you actually end up caring more about her than anybody else in the movie, is that there's that tension actually between well, is, is she accepting it or is she not accepting it? Is she making it seem like she's accepting it and talking him out of it or the opposite? There's there's a tension that's generated in that zone and in, in that area of the movie that that as 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 apparently is the case, we all took away from it more than anything else that happened. Can I just say too, because I think it's not that I think that she's being sincere. It's that I think she's giving like if if you if you turn the tables and put Fastbender on the side of that table, he wouldn't give you any of that speech. He wouldn't give you any of that conversation. He would like just get it over with. You know what I mean? Which is like I guess interesting on like like that's cool. You know, he just like just put me out of my misery or whatever. But like for her, there's so much more to connect with, even if it is um completely artificial and she's just trying to find a way out of it. It's like okay that's an interesting quality to do like this you're supposed to be a cold-blooded killer and, and, and you're still trying to find your way out of like a fate that you would have rendered someone uh without question yeah he you know a fast would have probably quoted from the fonts or something you know well as the jazz as the jazz mayor i i, I want to say that one of the maxims that repeats like a like like a riff if you will um anticipate don't improvise um somehow i think that they're using the wrong conjunction. I think you should anticipate and improvise, which which I'm which I'm sensing the Tilda Swinton character knew how to do more than he does. Yeah. So, yeah. Well, I think we're going to stop there. Although now I want to watch the hit. I think it's Terrence Stamp mm-hmm. that they're showing. Terrence up to Stamp kill. is the guy. Yeah, yeah great that's, performance. That's who great they're movie. showing up to kill. Uh, 
you know, everybody wants to kill Terrence Stamp at some point. So um, <laughs> to save us from General Zod. Uh, but anyway, we have to take a little break here. We're going to come back. We're going to talk quite a bit about Albert Brooks. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. Loneliness can be a significant health risk to people of all ages. Dr. Laura Saunders, a psychologist from Hartford HealthCare's Institute of Living, talks about social isolation and why we need to connect in person. Loneliness actually is a pretty significant health risk for people that struggle with social isolation. It affects their blood pressure, it affects their immune system, it affects your willingness to get up and get out and can cause some not just emotional issues, but health problems as well. You're not alone. Dr. Saunders explains how important it is for us to look to others and get out of our comfort zone. I like to talk about social isolation as not just that individual's problem, but it's a community problem or it's a family problem. We need to connect with others. We can take space at times as well, but we need to step out of our comfort zone and do things to connect with other people. It's life-saving. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. We are back. This is The Nose. Uh, on The Nose today, Irene Papoulos, Gene Seymour, Sean Murray, uh, we are now going to talk about um, Albert Brooks, uh, about a new documentary that um, is done by Albert Brooks's best friend. Which, by the way, if they're going to be, there's going to be a documentary about you. Have your best friend make it, because obviously you're going to get a nicer treatment. It's called "Defending My Life." Uh, it's an HBO documentary. Um, it's um, well, it says here in my notes, the first documentary Reiner has directed, other than this is Spinal Tap, of course. Um, so. Um, I have so many questions about this and, and maybe a good deal that, that I'd like to say, too. But, Irene, I'm going to start with you because I, I guess I'm probably less clear. I think I can guess on the relationship that both Gene and Sean would have to Albert Brooks. But I don't, I don't know exactly where he is in your in your constellation of, of comedy. Um, yeah. And he wasn't, uh, you know, I loved like the first one that came to mind when I think of him as a coming to America. I just thought that was so funny. I always loved when he would pop up in a movie, but, uh, and I, he wasn't someone that I, you know, I actually didn't even know that he was a stand up comedian in, in a, in a, in a serious way. Um, but I actually, you know, when I saw the clips they had, it was so great, all the clips they put in the movie and a lot of them I'd seen and I was like, oh yeah, and I was laughing. I was completely laughing. Um, I, but I, I do have to say that the thing that struck me the most about the about the film was the poignance of the friendship. I mean, even your best friend, like how many men, how many grown men talk about their best friends? Very, fr I mean, do any of you talk about your best friend? Do you have a best friend? I have no friends, so. Um. <laughs> We've known that for a while, but yes, I have I have a couple of best friends, people I, I could call best friends, and yes. Well, but that's not best. You know, best is yeah. just one, right? That's true. I mean, it is an incredibly sure. durable friendship. It goes back to these are both yeah. men in their 70s. This goes back to their at least uh, teenage years. Uh, they grew up close to one another. Uh, but before we go a little bit further, 
Um, let's hear a little clip from the film. This is uh, a bunch of people uh, praising Albert Brooks to the sky. You'll hear him first, but then you'll hear Conan O'Brien, Wanda Sykes, John Stewart, and the director James Brooks. No relation. This is a B1 cap. We look into ourselves, all of us, and we say, how much talent do I really have? You know that feeling? I didn't realize someone could be funny that way. I mean, in other words, do I really have enough to get me through an entire life? Always something, like, just different. Will I become an actual old person that I see walking on the street now? Me? And what kind of an old person will I become? That's very important. Will I be someone who's loved and respected and known to have led an honest, positive kind of life? He was the first kind of alternative alternative comic. We know what talent we're starting out with, and we devise a game plan. A game plan for living, so to speak. I don't think there's anybody like him. Where do I fit into all of this? My game plan is all off. Here I am, five years into my career, I have no more material left. The, by the way, one of my best friends is Steve Metcalf, and that is one of, I believe that is one of his favorite uh, Albert, maybe his favorite Albert Brooks things. So, Sean, <laughs> I am very old and you are very young. We are both comedy nerds. We both love comedy. Um, I, I would just quickly, quickly want to say the first 30 so minutes of this documentary is mostly clips from, I guess you would call it his stand-up career. He didn't really do stand-up exactly, or he did, but what we're seeing are these bits that he would do like on Carson and other kinds of variety shows, and they're kind of conceptual in nature. And I had seen most, a lot of them live, um, or in real time anyway. And despite the fact, I thought I was going to have to go to the hospital. I was laughing so hard. I really thought <laughs> my life was in danger and that I was not going to be able to catch my breath. And Sean, I'm wondering for you, you're you know, young, but you're also kind of a student of comedy. I'm wondering sort of how this whole all landed for you. I think it probably landed exactly how it landed for you. I mean, not exactly, because I'm, I'm a much younger man. But... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> no, but uh, I, I mean, I, I love Albert Brooks. And I I think w- one of the things that really struck me with this was that, um, you know, those clips of his of his performances, they made me laugh so much, despite the fact that like, I, you know, people always worry about like how well something ages. And I think the part of the reason why certain things don't age well is not simply because the things in themselves uh, are dated, but like so many people have imitated that thing to the point where like you kind of lose the excitement or um, originality of the of when it was um, when when they first did it. And I think he was a, such a pioneer in in that 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 sort of alternative comedy. In a way, it, it's so unique that like any type of anytime I've seen a comic try to imitate it it's been such a pale imitation. Like you kind of know when someone's trying to do like trying to do Albert Brooks or like trying to do, um, uh, what's the man on the moon? Um, Uh, Andy Kaufman. Andy Kaufman. Yeah. Like it's like, it's it's such a derivative kind of, uh, uh, performance. And I think all the bits that he does here just still work so well. Um, and I think that's amazing. And I, I think what things that I like, I like about the documentary is that, like, I, I, I typically don't really go in for like hagiography type documentaries <laughs> where it's just like, oh, this guy was great, but he was great. And I think it's great to have his like his friend do it because it's like I think th- this, this serves a good purpose for me in terms of like it's nice to just remember he's you know he's still here, but like remember Albert Brooks because he's such a unique figure. Like, yeah, I'm sure he's you know, like he, he no one has a perfect track record, but like the guy's pretty unassailable you know what i mean like it's it's like 
whether it's stuff he's written, stuff he, his performances, his movies, his voice acting, it's all just like you just anytime Albert Brooks is is present, you're just so happy um, <laughs> that he's a part of that project, and and that's pretty much the entire documentary is just everybody agreeing with that. Yeah, I I think that might be a fun idea to poke at a little bit. But Gene, I did also want to give you the opportunity just to sort of share what I know is your fairly vast appreciation of the <laughs> of, of Albert Brooks. Well, uh, I, I wanted to sort of land on something that that Sean had said. Uh, the word love. Um, a lot of people, you know, he's you say you love Albert Brooks. There are many people in the movie who say they love love Albert Brooks. Um, there aren't a lot of people working in that alt comic vein who who drew anything close to what we're talking about when we talk about loving somebody's work. I mean, people. I mean, there there were a lot of alt comics subverting not just comedy but also the way comedy was pre- presented on TV. Notably, Steve Martin, uh, Andy Kaufman, and others. I don't know if anybody who loved Andy Kaufman as a comedian purely. They, they loved him as a person, I've heard. And even some of the guys who are more aggressive or more aggressive about it in their way, like Jim Carrey. No one talks about Jim Carrey like they love him, <laughs> the way they talk about Albert Brooks in this case. And I was trying, I was thinking back on what about what it is about him that draws that kind of affection. Because the persona that he has played, now you, you mentioned coming to America, for instance, uh, Irene, you know, he's he's a pain in the neck, you know, and he's grating. But you just, you know, you're, you're just somehow still rooting for him, no matter how, you know, craven or obnoxious or I think it's the vulnerability he gets. Yeah, you know, it's, it's the vulnerability that he has, like he's willing yeah. to show his vulnerability. Yeah. You know, and maybe. Yeah, and that's why we love him. That's a big part of it, and 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 yet he's still able to do in the process of going after. This, he's not going at the same time. He's not going after our love. He's not, you know, say, saying "love me, love me, love me" the way generations of people in show business have done. He comes by it, and this sounds banal, but he comes by it honestly is that is that well i think i think he's also got a take on it which is the show show business narcissism he plays a lot of showbiz narcissists he mm-hmm. you know even even in his first movie real life he plays this documentary filmmaker who's just <laughs> kind of unscrupulous <laughs> and willing to do anything to get the movie finished and 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 a, and a narcissist and and i think his narcissism creeps up in in some of the other roles but irene that leads leads me to a place that I want to explore for just a moment. Speaking of the word love, you know, there weren't very many surprises for me in this movie. I'm, I'm an Albert Brooks nut, and I'm like Sean. If he's in something, that's just good news. Uh, it can't be anything else. But um, I was sorry, there was one surprise. It was, there was sort of a suggestion that prior to his rather late-in-life marriage, he was kind of a player that he, I think, Nymph, uh, I think uh, Reiner uses the term nymphets. Uh, I, if I ever knew that he dated Linda Ronstadt, I had forgotten. I know he dated a number of his leading ladies, but there was almost kind of an implication that, you know, he, he was a ladies' man. Um, and and maybe that gets... And, and when you think about how annoying and needy he is in his on-screen persona, that's a little surprising. But maybe it's not that surprising to you, Irene. 
Not at all. <laughs> Vulnerability and humor as a combination. Come on. Women love that. Yeah, you know? I, I guess and, that makes sense. Yeah. And, yeah. And, and because because he's he's not afraid to admit. When, but I and I also think it's because he's not he 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 isn't really a narcissist, I would say. Yeah, I, I, I would agree. That's what you were suggesting yeah. that it sometimes, you know, he doesn't. And that's why um, Rob Reiner loves him, too. You know, it's kind of like that's why Rob wants to say, look at this guy. He's amazing. You know, and he has a humility. He has he, I would say it's like humor, vulnerability and a certain humility. That package is is wonderful. And they're not nymphettes. They're older. You know, anybody who make anybody who writes the dialogue in defending your life or even mother <laughs> can't quite be a, a, a narcissist in, in the purest sense. I mean, that, that, that guy is putting stuff out there and and he does so knowing that some of the things he says about love, about having parents who say they love you, maybe. Uh, I mean, he knows his audience. He knows where 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 to reach, and he's not pushing buttons in the in the way that a manipulator does. He's saying, "Right? Am I right about this? Don't haven't you wanted to say this yourself? You know." And and that's I think where the affection comes from. That 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 kind of we're glad to see him in anything he does comes from. Yeah, and it's like he doesn't. He it's almost like he doesn't love himself enough. You know, and so that's yep. why part of why we want to love him because because we want to say you're you're fantastic, but it's almost like he doesn't really know that. Right. Yep. I mean, he articulates this. I'm sure James Brooks wrote this line, but in broadcast news, he, and it's in the doc. He he says this thing to Holly Hunter. He says, "Wouldn't it be great? Wouldn't it be great if our if our neediness and our insecurity made us more attractive to other people?" <laughs> um, so it does in his case. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, it it did work great uh, in, in his case. And I don't know, Sean, where you're, I had a question for you and it slipped my mind now, but where are your thoughts going right now, just in terms of Albert Brooks and the, oh, I know what it was. I have like almost a little niggling criticism or at least sort of a way of kind of, I, I know we all like this documentary, uh, but, um, and I know it's nice for once that a documentary is, is lovingly made by a loving friend. And, but I think there's something about it that makes it a little bit breezy. You know, they breeze through a lot of stuff. And, and for example, his brother, Bob Einstein, uh, who was Steve Martin's writing partner, I think on the old Smothers Brothers show and had his own, he's sort of barely in there. I, I think so, I wish some of the clips were longer, the speeches were longer from some of the movies. I've always had this sense that Brooks really, really chafed and struggled against studios and money people and all the people he had to deal with. That's dealt with, but in a kind of flyby way. Um, you know, as loving as this thing is, I sort of feel, Sean, like there's another documentary where you where more questions get asked. No, I totally agree. Um, like you said, we all seem to have enjoyed it, but I think to my point about like how I typically don't like hagiographies is, mm. is for that exact reason where it's like, I, I'm thinking of, um, because Joe Apatow is in the documentary, his, um, his documentary, uh, the Zen diaries of Gary Shandling. And I, I feel like another very good documentary. And I think it did a really good job of like exploring like the unlikable parts of Gary Shandling. Um, and, and not even, not, and not just the unlikable parts, but like the complexity of him, the, um, the insecurity, the, um, you know, the ways in which he, you know, he was clearly a genius, but he also like, 
you know, it, it wasn't, it didn't come as easy as, as you would think from the outside. And, you know, you know, every documentary doesn't necessarily have to accomplish that, but I feel like to your point, like he absolutely had to have struggled with the studios. And, you know, there was that great scene where he kind of breaks down the conversation he has with the studio heads about um, how to distribute, I think it was Modern Romance. Mm -hmm. And then, um, but it's like, I'm, I'm sure that happened on almost every film. And like, I, I wonder, I wonder because his best friend makes the documentary, how much is it was like, did they have some stuff with, uh, with, with Bob Einstein? And it, it got cut maybe because, you know, he just passed away uh, recently. Maybe that was too, you know, um, sensitive for him or, uh, you know, like, there's, I feel like, you know, maybe Albert, had a little bit more creative control in, in terms of like, hey, I don't want that in there. Or like, you know, I said enough, you know what I mean? Like, you know, I said enough on this. Um, because, you know, to my point earlier when I was saying like, you know, he's kind of like unassailable. It's like, well, nobody's unassailable. Um, and, you know, the, 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 there's that scene when he talks about like why he quit uh, live performance or when he quit live performance rather. And like, you know, that's, there's a lot to explore there because, you know, there's no way that sort of... Um, that sort of psychological issue just disappeared then, you know what I mean? I'm sure it must have popped up later times in his career. Um, but, you know, I, you know, I, got, I guess we got what we got. But what we did get in terms of Albert Brooks himself, not the documentary, is like I was thinking um, when one of the things I love about his work is that there's such a um, everyone kind of touched on this a little bit. Like there's a sincerity to his his work that is kind of missing in a lot of com uh, contemporary comedies where it's like, um, I think Wes Anderson is probably the only person who ever really comes close to it in terms of like, this can be very funny and very clever, but it's also like at the end of defending your life, you feel emotional attachment to, um, to, to, to that, uh, to those characters, you know what I mean? It's not just like, it's very funny. It's very, it's incredibly clever, like uh, a premise for a movie, but it's also like he, he baked a lot of heart into it. And I think, I think he's so underrated. I guess not underrated. Cause you know, these made a documentary about him, but like as a writer, you know, purely as a writer, uh, like he, he understood, he wrote great characters. I feel like and a lot of movies write great jokes, but he writes such great characters. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Um, I think we have to stop there, unfortunately. Uh, we're going to leave some time for endorsements. I do want to say that this is the happiest day of my year so far because Sean, with his fully operating, young, syntactically intact brain, couldn't come up with, <laughs> up with the name Andy Kaufman, and I could with my rotten, diseased, you know, <laughs> calcified brain cells. So anytime the 69-year-old guy gets to supply the young guy with a name he can't come up with, um, this will just... Well, now it's the worst day of my year. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Exactly. Um, all right. We have to. It'll pass, Sean. It'll <laughs> That's right. pass. That's right. It gets better. Um, we'll take a little Apparently break. Not. Yeah, not really. Um, uh, we'll take a little break. We'll come back, make some recommendations. Somewhere beyond the sea, somewhere waiting for me, my lover stands on golden sand. And watches the ships that go sailing somewhere beyond the sea. And the technical producer of today's show is Supercat Pastor, and Jonathan McPants is, as usual, the producer of this episode of The Nose. Our panel is uh, Sean Murray, stand-up comedian, writer, host of the Nobody Asked Sean podcast. Irene Papoulos, also a writer and the author of the essays Only You Can Write, a must for holiday giving. 
Um, we should just do like do a, like a holiday thing where Ileana Douglas's book and Irene's book and anybody else from the show who's got a book, we we can get people to, to order them. Uh, Gene Seymour is a writer, professional spectator, pop culture maven, and jazz geek. We are going to make some recommendations now, and Irene, why don't you get us started? Okay, well, I, I just added one because it's a phrase that Sean said. He baked a lot of heart into it. Mm-hmm. I love that, and it sort of makes me want to think about that's something that I love, and I and you know I don't see in certain other movies. So that's interesting. Um, but also last night I went to creative cocktail hour at real Artways, which was so fun because they had this jazz combo. Who's like a heart for jazz combo with um, Nelson Bellow is the father, but this was Nigel Bellow, his son who plays trombone. And it was just so great to listen to and live jazz. And it's, it was, so if you can ever, if you ever see, you know, the, the Bellow, um, Nigel Bellow jazz combo playing around Hartford, go for it. And also, I just I also saw the movie Nyad on Netflix, which is you know about Diana Nyad, the swimmer, and as an older woman and a swimmer, um, and uh, somebody who really likes Annette Bening and and wondered where she had been, um, I found the movie quite interesting and sort of poignant in an interesting way, and I recommend it. Absolutely wonderful, Gene Seymour. What are you going to recommend? Well, first of all. Uh... I have a I have breaking news from the office of the mayor of jazz mm-hmm. as of today, November 18th, the day after Beaujolais Day, I have finished my top 10 jazz recordings Ooh. of the year. And I, of course, am dying to tell you what's on it or even give you hints, but I'm not going to do that because there's a whole show that I that I have to save <laughs> that for. And so instead, I'm going to talk about um, Nicola Walker. Um, now, some of you may know that name and others you may not. Most of you listening may know her as Annika mm-hmm. from the um, from the mystery PBS mystery series from 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 Brit- from England about this uh, Scottish detective um, who's middle aged and, you know, is a single mom. And she's and she she keeps looking at the camera, makes these very, very dry, rueful asides um, about um, Herman Melville, George Orwell, whatever comes to her mind while she's solving all these complicated cases along the coastline of Scotland. But uh, I I am fascinated by her and, and because she's obviously, she's also a very hardworking actress over there. And I thought, well, maybe this is all she does. But then I came across a show she did uh, some years back called Unforgotten, mm-hmm. where she is where she is, uh, she solves these cold cases uh, in, in uh, you know, in, in London, and uh, and she held me throughout the whole thing. I'm not saying the story was great, but there's something about her that really knows how to guide you through these things. And she, again, she's she's very popular over there. Annika, I have a lot of friends who love that show. I'm sure some of you have already watched some of it, but. Um, I'm just here to, to profess my <laughs> fascination yes. with uh, Nicola Walker. Well, she's also in Last Tango in Halifax. Uh, that's right. Um, right. She got a lot. She works a lot. She works a lot. All right, Sean, you have the floor. Okay, I'm back to recommending books. Uh, I'm 90% done with, um, I usually don't recommend something I'm not done with, but it's pretty great up to this point. So, uh, Rendezvous with Rama, uh, 1973 science fiction novel by Arthur C. Clarke about a, so it's the first contact story about um, in like the year 2130, I think, uh, uh, a starship that's 
basically uh, shaped like a giant cylinder enters um, sort of our near uh, solar system. And it's about like this crew that's exploring the um, the ship. And it's such a fascinating, I love science fiction where it's like, it's, it's, it's a really creative way, like uh, approach to like what science fiction, like, um, like hard sci-fi where it's like, um, very imaginative about like what a, a an alien civilization would be like. I, it's, it's like I've never really seen anything. There's very few uh, stories I've read like it where it's that um, creative about what this alien civilization would be like. Also, would like to um, recommend. Um, you know, actually, I was gonna. I was very one thing about the killer that kind of uh, stabbed me in the heart a little bit was that the the idea that stabbed me in the heart. But like, it made me feel like you know what. It's a very particular choice to give this guy who sucks uh, his favorite music is the Smiths because <laughs> the Smiths are great, but it's like Morrissey sucks so much. Like I want to recommend Hatful of Hollow, one of my favorite uh, Smiths records. It's like a, um, a lot of like uh, live sessions um, on um, BBC Radio, but it's like, can I do that? Because Morrissey really is a bad guy, so I won't do that. I will recommend um, a podcast called The Dig, though. It's um, it's about uh, exploring uh, class warfare. Uh, the dig dig uh very good uh they had an episode um recently uh one about hamas and one about um uh you know the labor movement uh hmm. of of late and i think it's really good a way to you know if you want to be politically involved and informed it's a really good podcast yeah. i think morrissey also wrote a, a song for uh, trolls band together too so you can listen to that one too so it's more <laughs> upbeat um i i just thought i would quickly maybe if people are albert brooks novices um, I think Defending Your Life is the most um, accessible of the movies, and it really gives Meryl Streep a chance to be just beautiful and charming and kind of an ingenue, and, and, and she does it so well. Rip Torn damn near steals this movie. Uh, maybe he, he even does. But I, I think all the way through, it's sort of an approachable movie. Um, I'm just going to mention two scenes from other movies because they're, they're very similar. One of them is from Lost in America, where uh, Albert Brooks's wife, played by Julie Haggerty, loses all of their money in a casino, and he goes to talk to the casino owner, brilliantly <laughs> played by Gary Marshall, and tries to talk him into giving back the money. Uh, and it's they should that whole scene should just be in this documentary. And there's a similar one from his first movie called Real Life, which is based on the Loud family. It's it's sort of early reality television almost. Um, and uh, Charles Grodin plays the father who's being filmed, and he's a veterinarian, and he. Loses Loses a horse on the table, <laughs> and and he tries to talk Albert Brooks into cutting that from the movie. And Albert Brooks so is always good. saying, "No, I don't think you realize how well you come through in that scene. Really, you come across as, uh, and it's just brilliant and wonderful." So anyway, speaking of brilliant and wonderful, thank you so much uh, for to this panel, uh, wonderful panel, wonderful show. Thanks for tuning in. We'll be back next week. Danberry, Waterberry, Oliveberry, Woodberry, hitting on New Britain. Vernon, I already said that one. Avon, Farmington, yeah, 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 yeah.